Reach Young Adult Ministry Sermons online from Tuesday, January 28th, 2020 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, entitled, Four Responses to the Consequences of Sin, from John 11, 1 Okay, so tonight we're going to look at a familiar story, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. Okay, so a little bit of context here. Um, we've talked about before, uh, so for us, the, the 2020 for REACH is the year of transformation. Okay, and we started out by looking at what does it mean to know God's will? What does it mean to have a changed life? And the only way for you to be able to know God's will and to have a changed life is if you live as a living sacrifice. It says that in, in Romans 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, right? And so we're looking at how God changes us and how God uh, wants to make us into what he intended. Because when he made man, he made, them in, made man in his image, and he meant for us to have community with him. But because of sin, we've been separated from him, right? And so... Uh, one of the consequences of sin is that is death, right? So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, right? Romans 6.23. But one of the things that we don't realize is in the consequence of sin, the death that we struggle with, um, it's not just about heaven and hell. We make an assumption it's about heaven and hell, but the truth is that sin corrupts us in every way. It corrupts us emotionally, it corrupts us spiritually, it corrupts us physically. Um, and how we respond to all of these ways that sin kills us is important. We need to understand that we, need, we have a comprehensive understanding of what sin does. So what we're going to look at tonight is the consequences of sin, the, the physical consequence of sin is death. right? So uh, when God made Adam in the garden, he took, he took soil he fashioned man, and he, and he breathed the breath of life into him, right? And so the ultimate consequence of sin is that we go back to that state. Because dirt we began, and, and in dirt we, we finish our corruption, right? And so the reversal of God's creation is at its peak whenever a human being that God has made in his image dies and turns back to earth. Okay, so we're going to look at how there's four different responses to the consequence of sin. Because death, it impacts us all the way around, right? So, but sin, the ultimate corruption is death, right? And so there are different ways that we can process the impacts of sin. And we're going to look at that tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 11. So, one of the things that we forget about is that sin affects all parts of our life, right? So we've talked about this before, that we are triune beings. We have three parts to our nature. Just like God has three parts to his nature, we have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit, right? Our body is our physical flesh, this flesh and bones that will turn into dirt one day, right? Our body is corrupted by sin because we will eventually age and we will get fat and we will die, right? That's just the natural progress of life. That's a wage of sin. Our spirit is the eternal identity that we have. It is your personality, your uniqueness, all of those things. Sin corrupts that. <clears throat> Where does Satan attack you most? It's in your self-talk, right? 
It's in how you process the issues of your life, the things that you doubt, you doubt about yourself, your natural capacities, all these things. You think, well, somehow I am not enough the way that God made me. And so sin begins to corrupt how we see ourselves spiritually in our personal identity and our soul. Our soul is made up of three parts, our mind, our will, and our emotions, right? So sin changes the way that we think about ourselves, our mind. It also changes our will, the priorities that we have. And then the third thing is that it changes our emotions, how we feel about the things that we think and the uh, attitudes that we have. Okay, so we got to remember that sin corrupts us in all different ways. So we're going to look at four different responses to the consequence of sin. And here's the thing is that this is not just a A plus B equals C. It's not a cerebral problem. Sin is not a problem to solve. The whole point of tonight is I want you to see that that the pursuit of God making you right is his ultimate goal. And that fellowship with him is how we find true life. Okay? This is not just a utility thing where Jesus comes, he dies, and he's gone just so we can get to heaven. God wants to know you, and he wants to know you in an intimate way. So John chapter 11. We're going to start with the first few verses here through chapter 16. So it begins. So now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he had heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going to go back. Verse number nine, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. He said this, and then, they told, then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. Then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may all die with him. So a couple of things here. So here's the setting. Bethany is like a suburb of Jerusalem. It's about uh, two miles away. So we're talking like a 30-minute walk. Really easy, right? So Lazarus, who Jesus loves, he loves him and his two sisters. These are, these are the same Mary and Martha that um, Jesus shows up at their house about dinner time, and Martha freaks out. I'm assuming she's the older sister. She freaks out about dinner and stuff. So she's like running around making food, and Mary is just sitting there at Jesus' feet listening. And she's like, Jesus, Jesus, will you just tell her I need some help? Like, I'm a little overwhelmed here. And he rebukes Martha, and he says, she's chosen the good thing because I'm not always going to be here. Apparently, that was Chad. Chad did that. <laughs> no. <clears throat> For those listening online, a stack of chairs just fell over randomly. Um, 
Okay, so it's about 30 minutes from Jerusalem, right? It's right next door. So the sisters thought naturally, right, Jesus loves us. He's our friend. We'll just shoot him a text, and he'll come over, right? Real simple. So look at what it says here. This is what's crazy. Verse 4. <clears throat> when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. This dude is a 30-minute walk away, and he's like, oh, cool, he's sick and dying. I'm just going to hang out. Say what? Say what now? Right? So, but here's the thing. We've talked about how to be a li- by being a living sacrifice, we're in tune with God's will, right? Number one question we get all the time, what is God's will for my life? Is it this degree? Is it this job? Is it whatever? And so we begin to fill in these spaces, but we don't actually commit and become a living sacrifice. Instead, what we do is we try to help God out by giving him suggestions. But Jesus, though, he sees the situation for what it really is. He says, look, okay, so these people that I love are hurting, but I see that this is for all of God's will, so I'm going to submit myself, even though, using my sanctified imagination, I can imagine Jesus is thinking, I need to get over there right away to help them out. But he doesn't, because he submits to God's will. The reason he submits to God's will, the reason he knows God's will, is because he is abiding in God's will. He is a living sacrifice. So he's beginning to see his mind is changed. He's not looking at this from human eyes. He's looking at this from sanctified, holy eyes. So he says, yes, these people that I love are suffering, but it is for God's glory that I wait. So he waits for two more days, right? He knew what was going to happen because he was a living sacrifice. But part of this being a living sacrifice thing and seeing things through God's eyes is being able to see the potential for what God can do in your loved ones. Because here's our tendency, at least this is, this is the way that I am. People that I care about, I don't want them to hurt. So if I can take that hurt from them or if I can help them solve that problem, then I will. But a true, mature, living sacrifice sees not just the part where I can help take the hurt away, but I can see the divine reason in the lesson that God is trying to teach. And so I choose the better choice for the people I love because that's my goal. As a, as a living sacrifice, I want to point people to God. I want to put point people to Jesus. And if I go in and I rescue them, then they're not going to actually experience that, right? So Jesus looks at this through holy eyes because he knew that God was setting him up to make a point. So what he did is he waited for two days. It's almost like he's waiting to get the, the notification that, that Lazarus has passed away. Like he's waiting for the obituary to pop up on Facebook. Didn't have Facebook back then. That didn't happen, right? He's waiting to hear, hear news, right? But here's what's cool, or what's interesting, right? Is that, the, is that the disciples, they know what's going on in Bethany. I know, dad joke, right? That was bad. Thanks, Roya. Um, Katie's like, you? Um, so here's the deal, right? So Bethany is just, just right over there. So Jesus chooses to wait, but he knows what happened to Bethany. Last time they were in Bethany, they tried to stone Jesus. They called him a heretic. So the first thing we're going to look at is how the disciples processed this event, right? So we're going to look at the disciples. Look at what happens. So the disciples, oh my goodness, Thomas cracks me up. This is so ridiculous. So starting in verse 8, 
It says, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and we're going to go back, going to go there again. And then Jesus, like, he, he tells them, hold on, just, just pump the brakes. Let's provide some context. So Jesus makes a point here in verses 9 and 10. He says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered, if anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. Jesus is saying, hold on, guys, wait a second. We've got to put on our God goggles here and see this for what it really is. He says, if we walk by the Spirit and we see things in their divine purpose, we're not going to get tripped up by the world, right? If you're walking in the daytime, you're not going to trip over things and run into things. But if you're walking at night, you will, right? It's pretty plain. You got to think about this. Those who don't know Jesus, that don't have any spiritual perspective, they are blind people walking around. The analogy in the Bible is that these are blind people leading blind people. And so they run into stuff, right? Have you ever noticed that, that people who don't know Jesus, it's like, there's, it's like one disaster after another in their life? It's like, I don't understand what the problem is. It's like a person behind the wheel of their car and they're blind. They've got a blindfold on and they're just driving down the road, just running over stuff. I don't understand my relation, why my relationships don't work out. I don't understand why and everything's external, right? It's always somebody else. They were in my way or whatever. But Jesus says to us who are in Christ Jesus, the light is turned on and we can see. That's why we can look at people who are struggling with sin, whatever that sin is, whether it's sexual sin, addiction or whatever, and we can see them with holy eyes and we can have compassion, true godly compassion, because we see them for what they are. We see blindfolded people driving down, running things over. So, God, so Jesus is saying, listen, Put on your God goggles here. Look at this. This is the truth. And then he tells them that Lazarus, he's, he is, uh, he's in trouble, but they try to give him excuses of why they shouldn't go. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, he said this, <clears throat> then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but, but I'm on my way to go wake him up. What do the disciples say? Verse 12, he says, then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to get well. He's going to get better. Like, dude, just taking a nap. You said to yourself, he's good, but... There's no reason for us to go because don't you remember they tried to kill us? Look at what he says. <clears throat> Continuing on, verse 13. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. So Jesus, from the, from the get-go, Jesus is not saying, oh, well, yeah, he might die, whatever. Jesus waited on purpose for Lazarus to die. Consider that. Jesus waited on purpose for Lazarus to die. Jesus is not making a bad situation better. He is on purpose waiting for it to get the worst possible way it can. So what does that mean for us? That means that there are things in our lives that are going to be, that are going to be hard. There are things in our life that are going to be a natural consequence to, consequence to sin. And what ends up happening is that we look at God and we say, why don't you just show up and fix this? Like, I'm so frustrated with you right now. Why don't you just fix it? You've got all the power in the world, but you don't. Why? Because God is looking at you with completely different eyes. Because we are trapped. We are trapped within the context of our reality. What we've experienced in our past up to the point that we are. We have no context for the future. We have no idea what God's going to do down the road. And so what it is for us is that we look at all these exterior surroundings and we freak out. It's like, oh my goodness, we can't go back there because they tried to stone us last time. Don't you remember? But Jesus, he says, no, guys, no. He makes it a point. We're going because he is going to die. Look at what he says. 
verse 13, Jesus, however, was speaking about his, his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you. Jesus says, I'm actually excited about this because you get to see God do something great. He says, I'm glad for you, verse 15, that I wasn't there so you may believe. But let's go to him. And then Thomas, this is the same dude that after Jesus was risen from the dead, Jesus appears to all the apostles in the upper room. And Thomas comes in late to the, to the party, right? And he's like, they tell him Jesus is alive. This is the same guy that's like, I'll believe it when I put my fingers in the, in the scars on his hands. And I, and I put my hand in his side where the spear went in. Doubting Thomas, right? Thomas is like the world's worst Debbie Downer. Look at his response in verse 16. He goes, then Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let's go with him. That way we can at least die together. I mean, come on. Do you have people like this in your life where they're like, they're like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh? Like, oh, well, you know, I guess life is just hard, so let's just all curl up in a ball and die, right? It's just, oh, my goodness. Talk about, oh, dude, this guy, he needs to get slapped. This is crazy. Okay, so the disciples are, are terrified. They're like, oh, my goodness, we can't go. We can't go back. So the next person we're going to look at is Martha. Check out what Martha does. So Jesus waits a couple of days, and then he decides to go to Bethany, right? And so Martha hears what's happened. So start in verse 17. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, hold on. Pause one second. So I've got to explain this. So there's some number discrepancies here. It says he waited two days, and then he's been dead for four days. What does that mean? Okay, so uh, back in the first century Israel and Palestine, right? There were two ways to keep track of days. Okay, the first is like, for instance, tomorrow, like if I said tomorrow I'm going to meet you, a way you could say that would be the next day, right? One day apart. Well, we can either say one day apart or we can like not account for today and just do one day. So for instance, if you counted today and tomorrow, that'd be two days, right? But if I told you tomorrow, I could, it, would, it, it might also just mean one day, right? So they throw off the day before and the day after, and it's about night times, right? So that's why there's a discrepancy in two and four. That's what it seems like, okay? So moving on. Okay, but back up. And then I was like, then I went crazy. Okay, so this is how I understand this, right? So there are, so today is one day. Tomorrow is the second day. Let me back up. I'm sorry. That was confusing. Today is one day, and tomorrow is the second day, right? But if we were just considering the time frame from today to tomorrow, we could just say one day away from now, like say we're going to have lunch tomorrow, right? So one sleep. So we would say one sleep, or you could say two days. Am I, does that make sense? It's actually two days, but it's three sleeps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's three sleeps, yeah. Three sleeps. Wow, that was... Hold on, I need to stretch. <laughs> this is the kind of stuff, like in my seminary classes, the professor's talking, and I'm like, wait, what? Like, exactly, yes. 
Hmm. There you go. All kinds of consequences to those, don't, aren't there, Haley? That's why I don't do it. Okay, let's look at Martha. Let's go back. Verse 17, right? When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Okay, so here's the thing about Martha, right? So here's the setting. Martha hears Jesus is in town. So she runs out the door. But her sister, Mary, we're going to look at her in just a second. She's a little hacked off at the moment, right? So what does she do? She's like, he didn't show up for me, so why should, I'm just going to hang out here. So she just stays in the house. I just picture her in the living room, like, watching Netflix or whatever. And like, I'm just, I'll wait until he tells me to come see him, and then I'll go see him. I'm not going to give him the satisfaction because he didn't care about us enough to come when we asked him. Now our brother's dead. Sure. Go, go talk to him. Awesome. This is the same Mary that loved Jesus so deeply that she washed his feet with her hair with perfume. But this happens before the perfume story. This happens before the dinner story. So Mary hasn't, hasn't learned these things about Jesus yet. So she's a little angry. Have you ever been angry when God doesn't show up when you think he should? Right? Never, right? It definitely happened to me, right? So Mary stays behind, and Martha's like, no, I'm out. So she goes. But look at what happens. Look at verse 22. Martha still had faith in Jesus, but here's the thing. She looked way past where she was, and she thought, okay, well, everything that God has for me is later down the, down the line. She didn't think about what happens right now. Look at what she says. She says to Jesus, Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus says in verse 23. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus is like, well, okay, hold on a minute. Do you not know who I am? Think about this. Martha is so consumed she understands my brother's dead. She understands, okay, this is serious, right? But for her, everything about God and her experience with Jesus is way down the line in her future. Okay, so we have an assumption, especially when we're young, that somehow God can't use me until I'm way down the line. We have an assumption that God, what God has for me, the fullness of his glory, the fullness of my enjoyment in him, somehow is at a point down the road on the trajectory, Right? God will use me when I'm married. God will use me when I have kids. God will use me when my kids are grown. God will use me when I'm retired. God will use me, you fill in the blank. Everything is, is way down that way. It's like, Jesus is like, no, listen to my voice. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, right? Look at what he says. He says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says, do you believe this? I want you to confess it right now that who I am. Look at what she says. I believe you. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Here's the other thing, too, about Martha, right? It's like she, she's overthinking this. I don't know if you've ever met these people, like when you ask them when they're going through a hard time, and you know they're going through a hard time, but they always give you like the appropriate spiritual answer. It's like, I want a genuine human moment from you. Don't you be that person, right? My mom just died. Well, you know, God just needs another angel in heaven, and you know, we're just suffering through it, and God is good, right? But on the inside, they're like, how in the world could you do this to me? but talking to the pastor. So I'm going to put my best foot forward, right? So Jesus is like, he asked her where, he asked him about her brother. And she's like, well, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus is like, excuse me? Hello? Ridiculous. She almost seems way so spiritual. She's so caught up. She, it's, it's like, the man of God is here, therefore I'm going to give a man of God answer. Martha forgets that Jesus is there for her too. He's not just there because of her brother or because of her sister. She can't see beyond herself enough to see that Jesus just wants to have a moment with her, a human moment with her. He genuinely cares about her. And it's not about the solving the problem, it's about, Martha, I'm just, I'm right here. Let's not solve the problem right now. Just, let's just stand here. And let me love on you. Jesus redefines her response and he lays out the gospel. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Everyone who lives, everyone who believes in me will live. This is a huge moment because Jesus is telling her, listen, it's not about getting this doctrinally right or saying the right thing. Notice that Jesus didn't tell her that he was going to raise her brother from the dead right away. He was there, there was more to teach. Sometimes in the middle of our struggle, we want God to explain to us what he's going to do to fix it instead of focusing on the lesson. Our lives pursuing Jesus are not just about the ending. They're about learning to recognize his presence in our life in the, in the past, in the present, and in the future. We're called to abide as living sacrifices. Life with Christ is not just about solutions to problems. It's about the process of learning his will. He's telling, he's telling Martha, just like he told the disciples, he's saying, look, there's more to this than just your brother being dead. That's the, that situation is the vehicle for me to teach you something powerful. And you can't see past the problem because you're focused on the solution. No matter what the problem is, the solution is always your relationship with Jesus. Always. It's not about the job. It's not about the relationship. It's not about the status symbol. It's not about any of those things. It's about Jesus. That's where we get it wrong. I'm telling you, I remember. I remember being in my mid-20s thinking, you know what? My goal, I'm going to prove all these people wrong, and I'm going to be so wealthy, I'm going to retire at 40. That was my original goal. Well, guess what? I'll be 35 in August, and we are not anywhere close to that. Listen, we think, uh, we think that our relationship with God, 
relationship with Jesus is just about solving the problem. But it's not. The situation that you're in right now, it seems so big. It seems so daunting to you. But the truth is that the situation is irrelevant. The situation is irrelevant because guess what? It's going to change. There will be a new, there's going to be a new situation a couple months down the road, a couple years down the road. It never changes. Those are just vehicles that God uses to teach you new things. Remember that there's, there's two purposes to life, right? We've talked about this before. There's God's purpose for creation, and then there's our purpose for creation. God's purpose is to bring glory to himself, right? Our purpose is to know God and enjoy him forever. They're two sides of the same coin. Well, guess what? They're connected. As God is glorified in our lives, we enjoy him, and we begin to know him better. As we begin to know him better, he lets us experience radical things like this, and he gets glory. And guess what? In Romans, it says that we are glorified with him as our lives unfold by being living sacrifices. Consider that for a second. That as you live your life as a living sacrifice, as you begin to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as you begin to understand what God's will is, you see things for what they truly are in their full context, spiritually, physically. God displays himself in your life in situations like this. And guess what? You are glorified with him and it is the ride of your life. These situations are opportunities to put God on display to the people around you. This is not something for the future, for the distant future. This matters right now for who you are in this moment. It doesn't matter if you're living at home. It doesn't matter if you have a job that pays your bills. It doesn't matter if you're working part-time at Quick Trip. It doesn't matter if you're working 65 hours a week, bagging groceries. It does not matter. The, The situation does not matter. Because God has a moment for you right now to teach you something right now to bring you closer to him right now. Don't be a Martha. Don't dismiss the things that God's doing in your life and saying, oh, well, that's great. I'll do that stuff when I'm older. I'll do that when I'm in a more stable, in my, stable place in my life. Churches are filled with people who have built their entire lives on the world and they have, they have lived it by saying the same thing. When I dot, 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 I will obey God. They live their whole lives. And guess what? God made you to do way more than to make money, get fat, and die. He made you to know him and enjoy him forever. And these situations are just a vehicle that God uses to get you there. Well, let's look at Mary. Mary, Mary, Mary. Jesus loved this woman. He loved her. She was his friend. Look at what happens with Mary. She's, she is so overcome with grief she is so angry, she waits until her sister comes back and says, Jesus is looking for her. Look at this in verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling you. 29. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. You know what? I think that Mary was upset and she was angry, but she was just waiting. She was, she was so anxious to hear that Jesus wanted her. I don't know about you, but there have been moments in my life when I have been so mad at God 
that I was just waiting for him to give me an excuse to come to him. So she runs to him, verse 30. Jesus had not yet, not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Jesus waits for her. He doesn't go to the house and like, hey, Mary, so I know you're having a hard time. Like, he waits, right? Verse 31, the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who came with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Some translations say that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was angry. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, they told him come and I say, Lord, they told him, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Mary is so angry with Jesus. I just pictured in my mind's eye. She runs to him. And all she can do is just collapse at his feet and just say, Lord, if you were just here, if you would have just showed up, none of this would have happened. Have you ever been there in your life? You're like, oh my goodness, God, why? Why? Why did you let this happen to me? You know what? It's okay to be angry at God. It's a completely human thing to be angry at God, to be frustrated with God. He's waiting for you to come to him. I don't know if you've got stuff happening in your life where you are angry at God. Something's happened to you. Somebody has hurt you. You're going through a very deep, dark place. God's word says that he doesn't willingly afflict the sons of men. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says that. It hurts him to see you hurt. And he wants you to come to him. But he's not going to come to you and appease you in your anger. You've got to humble yourself and run to him. And if it takes just collapsing at his feet and saying, God, you know what? I'm, I, I don't understand. Help me understand. It's okay. He wants you to come to him. He's not going to elbow his way to the front of the line to get your attention. He waits for you to come to him. Look at his first response and how he responds to Mary. Verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Consider this. Jesus, he sees Mary. She is so, he, he knows that she's hurting. He knows that she's angry. But there's something deep in there too. If you look at Mary's words, she feels entitled. She feels entitled that, Jesus should have done something. God, if you would have just, Jesus, if you would have just come here and fixed this and done this my way, none of this would have happened. If you would have just done this. When it says that he was troubled and he was angry, that's what he's angry at. James chapter four says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Jesus, as much as he loves her, as, as hurt as he is watching people he loves hurt, He's angry. He's like, will anybody get this? Like, this is the third person I've talked to, and nobody can see that I'm Jesus. Like, I am the resurrection. Everybody's freaking out about all this other 
junk over here that doesn't matter. And I'm literally standing right here. Everybody's concerned about the solution to the problem. They're not concerned about me. And so he's like, okay, let's do this. Where, are they, where have you buried him? But here's the thing. It pains God when his children hurt under the consequences of sin. Yet he allows the weight of sin to bring us to him. As living sacrifices, we need to remember that no matter if we're angry, sad, confused, or brokenhearted, we have to come to Jesus because he knows our pain and he wants to help us get through it. Look at Jesus. He says, where have you put him? Verse 34. Lord, they told him, come and see. I can imagine in my mind's eye, Jesus. He says, okay, where is he? And he's about to make a point. He's like, finally, I'm going to make a point. I can almost see him resolved. So he goes and he sees the tomb. and He's ready to make a point. He's ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he sees the tomb. And he looks at Mary and Martha and the people that are with them in their brokenness. And Jesus in his humanity breaks. And he begins to weep. He doesn't weep because there's no hope. He doesn't weep because it's out of his control. He weeps because he sees people that he loves that he has to watch suffer. See, one of the hardest things is to see people that we love go through difficult things and not rescue them. Some of you guys know that there's, that there's family members in my family that are struggling right now, that are struggling really hard. And I can tell you, watching somebody hurt themselves, it is excruciating. It's like, God, will you not just show up? All I'm asking is for one bolt of lightning. And yet you've got to watch. And as brokenhearted as it makes me to watch my family suffer, based on this, I know that he watches and I can't even compare to his heartbreak. He doesn't willingly afflict people, but he lets sin drive them to him so that he can put his glory on display. So now Jesus pauses. Let's look at Jesus' response here. How does he process through the consequences of sin? He meets them emotionally. He, he has genuine sympathy for them. He doesn't judge them for their grief. He doesn't brush them off. He doesn't, he doesn't worry about solutions. He's, he's there for them, right? He validated their pain. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 33. <clears throat> when Jesus saw that her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind, man, the, the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there, there's already a stench because he's been in there for four days. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. The first thing I think that's interesting here is, that, is this stone, right? So did Jesus need them to actually move the stone? He didn't, right? But what he did is he says, you know what? There's something, there, there's something that we need to take care of first. And I'm going to let you in on what I'm about to do. I want you to go ahead and roll the stone back. So for some of us, there are things in our lives that we purposefully put in the way of our obedience. That we say, God, you don't understand. There's, there's a, this stone there. Right? We can't actually do this thing that you've told me to do because of that. Look at what Martha says. She's like, uh, he tells them to remove the stone and she's like, oh, Lord, no, no, no. He's, he's still, like he's been in there for four days. Dude's stanky, right? We can't, no. Number one is the stone. Then it's like, oh, well, it might stink. So we don't want to do that. There's all these excuses why we can't be obedient. It's almost like Martha is saying, Jesus, I don't think you fully understand what's going on here. Like, we know what it's like to bury somebody. And after a couple of days, they kind of start stinking. And so like, he's dead. You're not just going to be able to put like a defibrillator on him and get him to wake up. Like, the dude is dead and he's stinking. But Jesus, though, remember, he's got his God goggles on. He says, no, no, no. Didn't I just, we just had this conversation, Martha. We just talked about this, Martha. Didn't I tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? He's like, dude, we just had this conversation and you're backing things up. She comes up with excuses. It's like, what's the use? He's already stinking. But Jesus reminds her who he is. So here's what's cool. So Jesus knows why he's there. He's like, everybody is skeptical about this thing, except for me, it seems like. So now it comes time to make the point. So he steps up. They've rolled the stone back. I picture Jesus. He clears his throat, and he's like, okay, it's go time. But he doesn't just do it. First, he acknowledges the Father. Remember, Jesus is always pointing people to the Father, even now. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. Jesus points people to the Father. That's what we do. That's what he does. So look at the first things that he says. They remove the stone, verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said. Notice he's not talking to the crowd, but he's saying it loud enough where they can hear him. He says, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this. It's almost like he's like, Dear God, I know that no one can hear me right now, but I'm going to go ahead and pray really loudly. It's like, I'm going to let you in on this conversation. He says, I praise you and thank you that you always hear me. That you always hear me. I know that you always hear me, but because of this crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice. And then he takes it up another octave. So everybody hears. Lazarus, come out. 
and he comes. I love that. See, we have this, so do you think that Jesus stood up, he, he walked up to that opening and he was like, oh man, I really hope this works. Or did he have confidence in God's will because he was a living sacrifice? Right? So to the person who's not abiding, the person who's not a living sacrifice, what they do is they say, oh, well, it's God's will for me to do this. Well, it's God's will for me to do that. And guess what happens? It's not God's will. So they look like an idiot, right? In the Old Testament, when prophets would do that, that's how they could tell who was a real prophet and who wasn't, is if what you prophesied didn't come true, they put you to death, right? There's a great quote by Charles Stanley. He's an old, he's an old preacher. God gets blamed for a whole lot of stuff that he has nothing to do with, right? <laughs> so to the person who's not abiding, they kind of nibble around the edges of Jesus, and they're like, you know what, I'm not really into the living sacrifice thing. I'm not really going to be all in, total abandonment and absolute trust. I'm just going to kind of learn some random things about God and a little random things about ancient Israel and kind of do my little thing and have a smart answer for conversation when I'm at church. But when it comes to actually being all in, being a living sacrifice, they're like, uh, so God told me, they justify what they want to do by saying God told me to do this. And guess what happens? Their life is a dumpster fire. Rule number two, don't do dumb stuff. Right? Don't do dumb stuff. Like blame your stupid decisions on God. But to the person who is abiding, to the person who is fully devoted, who is all in, you are not going to say God told me to do something unless he really told you to do something. And guess what? I've been on both sides of this in my life. And when you know God said do this, it would take a burning bush, a massive event, a bolt of lightning to keep you from doing what God told you to do. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? In him we are more than conquerors. We know that all things work together for good for those who are called, who love God and are called according to his purpose. We know that if we are in God's will, we will be transformed, we will not conform, and we will know the will of God. Jesus steps forward in boldness and he says, Lazarus, come out, because he is abiding. Jesus loved to put God on display in the challenging moments of his life. I can just picture him in my mind. Man, he is ready to make his point. He's taught, he's framed, he's framed everybody's mindset. He's like, okay, it's go time. About to show things off here. For those who are living sacrifices, we should capture the opportunities God has given us to show his power. A mature Jesus chaser is confident in God's will and his provision they're not concerned with earthly things or people's opinions. They have one goal, to see God glorified in their lives. To know God and enjoy him forever. To bring him glory. We should find deep satisfaction and joy in these things. And that starts with being a living sacrifice. Now, it could be you're like the disciples, right? 
You're consumed with all of the things that it's going to cost you to be obedient. God, Jesus, we can't go back there. They're going to stone us. We can't do that. There's all these obstacles. All, it's, everything's about you. Like, don't you understand what this is going to cost me? I can't talk to that person. I can't uh, make this radical decision in my life. I can't be obedient because I'm going to look weird. and It's going to cost me all these things, right? Maybe you're, a disciple, maybe you're acting like the disciples right now. God's telling you to do something, and you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. Super weird. Or maybe you're a Martha, and you just keep pushing your responsibility down the line. You're like, oh, well, you know, when I've got a job that pays me more, I'll go on that mission trip. Or maybe, you know, when I finish college, I'll, I'll really be godly in my relationships. Or maybe I'll do whatever. You fill in the blank. You, press all, you push all of your responsibilities to God down the line. Like somehow God cares about your age. He doesn't care about your age. Why do I know that? Because in, in Timothy, he says, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Instead, be an example to all. God doesn't care about your age. Don't, don't follow, don't believe that lie that somehow you're not relevant right now because you are. You've got an incredible opportunity with your life right now. Especially if you are single and working. That means that all bets are off the table. You can literally do whatever God calls you to do. Whatever. The adventure is waiting. And yet you're pushing everything down the road and saying, you know what, well, I'll do this or that, whatever. Well, let me tell you right now, when you get married, things slow down. And then they get fast. And then when you have kids, it gets faster. Next thing you know, you blink and you're middle-aged. And you're like, oh my goodness, I don't have the money to go on that mission trip. Guess what? The excuses never go away. It's like, oh, well, I don't have the money for that. I don't have the time for that. Fill in the whatever. Maybe you're a Martha. Maybe you're a Mary. And you're angry and you're just pouting. You're waiting for God to come and apologize to you because you're so hurt. I am so mad at you right now because you are so mean to me. I can't believe you gave me this life. Oh, you're so unfair. Guess what, though? I've got a news flash. It's not about you. Get over yourself and go to Jesus. Because he has miracles in store for you. He's got amazing things in store for you. But you're trapped in this moment and you are more concerned about making God suffer than being obedient. Bitterness is the only poison that you take expecting the other person to die. Maybe you're a Mary. Or maybe, just maybe, your response is like Jesus and you're focused on godly things and you're seeing God do radical things in your life. You're seeing growth in your spirit. You're seeing growth in your discipleship. You're seeing people around you be affected. I want to encourage you tonight. God has something for you. It doesn't matter how old you are or where you are, how much money you make, where you live. Any of these things, they are all excuses. If you're waiting for your situation to change to be obedient, you're looking at it wrong. I know that there are things in your life that you think are impossible. How am I going to start that business? How am I going to make enough money to pay my bills, to pay my rent? How in the world am I going to work things out with my family? How in the world am I going to make things right with that friend who seems to have abandoned me? How am I going to do all, all these how am I's? You're so caught up in you, you don't realize it. Let me encourage you in this. 
Sin brings death. It brings hardship in your life, and it sucks. It does. There's no other word for it. It just sucks. But that's not an excuse to not chase Jesus. It's not an excuse, right? James says we need to count it all joy because in the process of facing trials and difficulty and the consequences of sin, God makes us into something perfect at the end of the day. Instead, we should look at the challenges that we face, these Lazarus moments, and we should be overjoyed because we know that God's about to do something incredible in us. God has something for you. You can live a transformed life. You can live a life where you know God's will and are confident in it if you will put it on the line and be a living sacrifice. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at Evergreen Church. Doors open at 6.30, services at 7, at the corner of 111th and Mingo. Be sure and check us out online at reachtulsa.org, or you can find us on social media on Instagram at reach.tulsa. Also, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Bring your glory down. Come fill your people with revival.